right, good morning again. I'm going to put my watch on, though. I'm really not going to use it for the next couple of hours. <laughs> Putting it on anyway. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about change, and it's going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. So uh, hang with me, stay with me. Uh, a little bit different, but we can handle it. Change. Uh, it has been said that nothing is as constant in life as change. And different people have different dispositions toward change. Some people are comfortable with change. Some people are not comfortable with change. Some people seek change. Some people avoid change. Some people always seem to be trying new things and shaking things up, disrupting things. Other people absolutely love and crave and seek out and cling to homeostasis. Some people are bent on changing things. Other, other people seem to fight for change. So I'm going to do a little survey real quickly this morning. Everyone gets to, has to uh, participate uh, just for fun. I'm going to ask you to select one of the following five dispositions toward change in general best describes you. And they are eager for change, curious about change, neutral about change, hesitant about change, and resistant to change. Now the question for you is which one of these most represents your disposition toward change. And in a moment, I'm going to go through those again and name those, and you get to have to raise your hand for one of them, for just one of them. When I say that one, you raise your hand if that best represents you. I understand this is very general, uh, but do your best. Play along. Let's give it a whirl. I'm going to give you a pause just to think about it for a moment. Here we go. Eager for change. Raise your hand. All right, curious about change. A lot more people, good. Number three is neutral about change. Number four is hesitant about change. Good number of people, sure. And number five is resistant to change. You can be honest, there are a few hands. Thank you, Carl. So I put myself in this morning in the neutral to change or neutral about change category, but for the sake of full disclosure, I need to confess a couple of things. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and on into fifth grade, every day during class or during lunch, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and was happy about that, content with that, pleased with that, and could have done it for forever until in fifth grade, I accidentally under, un, uh, discovered tuna fish could be put on sandwiches. But up to that point, I had been a peanut butter and jelly guy and was happy with that, didn't need to change that at all. In fact, yesterday, I actually had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My wife and I and family don't go out to eat very often. When we do, I like to go to the same restaurant over and over and over. I order the same thing. I find something I like, I'm happy, I'm content with. I keep it going. My wife says that's boring. I have bought and driven used Hondas my entire life, and that's probably how things are going to go for me for the rest of my life. I was born into a Presbyterian church, baptized in a Presbyterian church, raised in a Presbyterian church all of my adult life. I have been in some Presbyterian church. I don't see that changing anytime soon. But everyone is different. Some of us gravitate toward change. Some of us run from change. What about God, though? What about God? Turning to the scriptures in the book of James, uh, we read, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, which is supposed to be from James, a word of encouragement, not a lot of change. In the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, we read, 
these words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Not a lot of change there. In the Psalms, verse 19, God who is enthroned from old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. God does not change. But other things change. As we know, cultures change. Languages change, means of communication and transportation change, styles change, fashions change. My wife acknowledges that I'm oblivious to that. <laughs> how we learn, how we work, how we play, how we get health care, how we participate in church, all change, even though God has not changed, does not change, will not change. Who God is, God's nature, God's character God's heart, God's intentions, God's ways, none of those things change. God doesn't change. We don't have to worry about God changing. God is not whimsical. But the cultures in which we live and swim, and thus the ways in which people engage and interact with God, may change, do change. They will change. They have changed, which we'll see in a moment as we open the scriptures again together. But first, let's pray. God, help us be receptive now to your words and your word, your truth, and in it, your grace. Help us to be attentive to your spirit among us and in us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart, received. If my words stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So we're starting this morning in the book of Acts. The New Testament begins with the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then goes right into a book called Acts, or more formally, its full name, the Acts of the Apostles. It sort of uh, transitions right where the gospels end off with the resurrection of Jesus, uh, picks up there, talks about the ascension of Jesus, and then the adventures of the earliest church, the earliest disciples, and what they are doing. Uh, they record all of the adventures of the post-resurrection community. In chapter 10, the author tells us about the, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who was a God-fearing man. He was not fully converted to Judaism, but he was close, and so the scriptures called him a God-fearing person. He believed in the God of the Jewish people. He prayed to God regularly, and the author of the book of Acts notes also that he gave generously to those in need, and specifically the poor. But he was not Jewish, and in that sense, he was still somewhat of an outsider to the family of God, to the Jewish people. The people considered people like Cornelius to be unclean, unclean. Anyway, one afternoon, Cornelius has a vision. He sees a messenger or an angel from God who says to him, go to Peter, send people to this man named Simon Peter, who's, living, who's staying with a tanner near the lake in Joppa. So Cornelius sends three of his people to Joppa, where the next day they find Peter. However, while they were there and while they were en route from Cornelius to Joppa, Peter also receives a vision from God, a message from God. And in that message, God showed Peter lots of different meats, foods, different animals, different kinds of meat that according to Jewish dietary laws were all forbidden for good, faithful, Jewish, righteous Jewish people to eat. And Peter didn't intend to eat any of those things. But a voice comes from heaven, a voice from the heavens. Peter too receives this vision that says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. 
And Peter says, no, I never have, I never will. I'm a good, faithful, upright Jewish person. The voice comes again, says the same thing. Peter responds the same way. The voice a third time, ding, 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 for Peter, says the same thing. And Peter replies in the same way. I've never done that, I never will. I'm a good, faithful person of God. And the voice says over and over, eat, this is something new, something different. And while Peter's wondering about the meaning of the vision and the three times message from the heavens, the three men knock at the door, the Holy Spirit says, uh, Peter, go to the door, answer the door, and receive these men, welcome them, do what they say. They're inviting you to go with them. Peter does. I'm going to pick up and read now from verse 23 of chapter 10. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together, called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, he found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, no one. But when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I, may I ask why you sent for me? Now fast forward to verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize, having received this vision himself and confirming that Cornelius had a similar vision, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and that does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, where Jerusalem was, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Peter's going through the whole story. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter from Joppa were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was now being poured out on the Gentiles. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So ends chapter 10 of the book of Acts on to chapter 11, which begins like this. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized Peter and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. It's like Peter's being called to the principal's office. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them this whole story again. I was in the city of Joppa praying in the trance. I saw a vision, dot, 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 that whole story again. And about how he shared the gospel and the truth of Jesus, crucifixion and resurrection with all of those people in Cornelius' house and household and family and how they received it. Verse 18, when the apostles in Judea, and the apostles in Judea were sort of the leaders of the church, the sort of world global movement of the church at that point as it was expanding. Jerusalem was sort of mother church. 
When the apostles in Judea heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life, with a capital L. Of course, to us, to you and me, this seems like no big deal about the Gentiles. But for the apostles and the followers of Jesus, who at that point were primarily Jewish in background, this was a huge change of thinking. The author jumps to the verdict in saying that they had no further objections, but certainly it took them some time and decision and listening and discerning and discussion and prayer to arrive at this point. People don't ordinarily make big shifts or changes rapidly or easily, including with regard to, and maybe especially with regard to one's faith or one's religion or one's belief or the practice thereof. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? But the Holy Spirit quickly led the church in Acts 10 to accept those Jesus, sect those whom Jesus' Jewish followers had previously thought of as unacceptable and outside God's covenant community. And things didn't end there. Fast forward to chapter 15 of the book of Acts, where some of Jesus' followers from the mother church in Jerusalem were teaching new followers of Jesus in Antioch, up a ways near the coast, teaching them from among them, the Gentiles, that they were welcome in the church, but that they, the men in particular, had to be circumcised in order to be saved per Jewish tradition. Yes, you got that right. But these grown men had come to faith in Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus, and they had trusted in the Lord Jesus. They didn't want to be circumcised. Surprise. <laughs> Who would? Unnecessary pain, awful pain. So the church in Jerusalem, we read in chapter 15 of Acts, had a summit about this matter involving the church's important leaders, including and involving all of them. Up until this point, circumcision had been an important and central practice for and among the Jewish people. But now the church was being challenged on this matter, and the question became, though this practice is important to us, is it really essential to salvation? Is it really essential to be saved? Is it really essential to trusting Jesus, to be welcomed into God's family and to following Jesus? Or was this an unnecessary hindrance still valuable to the Jewish people, but an unnecessary hindrance to Gentiles coming to follow Jesus. And this was a difficult matter for the church. Doesn't seem that tough for us. It was for them. They were being challenged to change their view on a practice that went back many centuries among their people, really the beginning of their story with Abraham and Isaac up on the mountain. An outward sign of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants and their descendants and their descendants, which would go on for centuries and would, in theory, supposedly change the world through God's grace. Circumcision was really important to them, and justifiably so. But in listening to the Holy Spirit, 
The message to Jesus' people and their church was that doors being opened to new believers and welcoming them into fellowship and into the covenant community and life in Christ and salvation was far more important than clinging to things tightly that, while important, really were only secondary in the big scheme of things and to God himself. To what are we clinging? To what are you clinging? To what am I clinging? And why? After another time of listening and discussion and discernment and prayer, James, the brother of Jesus, who had sort of become the key point person leader of the church in Jerusalem and so the mother church and so all of the church in some ways, James stood up and declared in chapter 15 about the matter of circumcision for all to hear these revolutionary words. Verse 19 of chapter 15, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And this is really big. This was a tectonic shift for the early church, a radical revolution. Change. James's message wasn't necessarily that following Jesus should be an easy endeavor. It wasn't. It never has been. It never will be. But they certainly should not make it unnecessarily difficult for people who had formerly been outsiders to be welcomed into the family of God. Are you with me? Fast forward now about 20 years. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth, the Greek city of Corinth, the church that he had visited who were then trying to work out how to be a faithful church and at the same time how to relate to unchurched people and brand new Christians in their midst, young Christians, and specifically how religious those people needed to be and how constrained to religious rules, regulations, laws, practices, traditions, customs they needed to be, to which Paul responds autobiographically in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians with these important words. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, Gentiles, so that I might, so that I am not free, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that, so that by all means I might save some, or God through me might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. In other words, Though Paul was was free to practice different aspects of his faith, the Jewish faith, the Jewish Christian faith, and follow Jesus in many different ways with regard to clean and unclean foods, with regard to circumcision and not, and any number of things, he surrendered, he let go of, he submitted his own rights, his own prerogatives, his own personal preferences to instead doing and living in a way that made the gospel more accessible to others. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible beings I might save some. Which brings us to the 19th century to an amazing man named Hudson Taylor who spent 51 years of his life in China, in frontier areas as a missionary and would go on to 
be an example, a model, an inspiration for dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of other missionaries in his trailblazing ways about how to reach people with the gospel. And what Hudson Taylor did that others before him had not done was to learn the language of the people and to use only the language of the people, was to dress like the people, cut his hair like the Chinese people, eat the same foods, whether he liked them or not, that the Chinese people ate, and so become like them so that he might win some of them and so that some of them might be saved. Now fast forward to our time. In our culture, belief in God is in decline and remains in decline, at least in the United States. In our culture, participation in churches continues to decrease. Exacerbated by COVID, yes, but that trend was already clearly downward before COVID, especially in older churches, especially in older denominations that have been either unable or unwilling to Some of us are curious about change. Some of us are hesitant about change. Some of us are eager for change. Others of us are resistant to change. Of course, change just for the sake of change doesn't make any sense at all. But when, where, and as change might open doors to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and coming to know, love, and follow Jesus and being welcomed into God's family and salvation, well, such changes should probably be considered pretty seriously and probably be embraced. And in case you haven't noticed, our world has changed, the whole thing. Our world is constantly changing, it always has been, but the pace of change now is almost exponential and discontinuous. And maybe especially as such pertains to God, faith, Christianity, the church, enduring, going through change rapidly to the point that changes, the changes in our world call for a different kind of church. There's a place in our world, there's a place in our culture, there's a place in our country, there's a place in our region and our, even our community for the sort of church First Pres has been and is. There is a place for that, for this, for us. However, the people who are interested in this kind of church, our kind of church, the way we are church, is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And in some ways, rapidly. People aren't spending their Saturdays wondering what the preacher is gonna say on Sunday mornings. Not in our area. We are experiencing significant change in our culture, the culture in which we live. How is the church going to respond? People aren't interested in what we do and how we are and what happens in here and how we've been church like they used to. Case in point, we had vacation Bible camp this past week, amazing week, wonderful week. Uh, tons of uh, kids participated. However, not nearly the number of kids that were participating in Vacation Bible Camp 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Not nearly. And some of that was because of COVID, sure. And some of that was because uh, families were traveling this year who hadn't been able to travel the last two years. But really, the bigger trend, the bigger reasons were people care less about Vacation Bible Camp. 
in our culture, at least in the ways that we've done it. Parents are less church than they once were. Our culture, our neighborhood, the people here have changed and are changing. More kids are moving, more families are moving, our schools are expanding, they're building new buildings, they're, they're putting more kids in classrooms. But the number of kids in Vacation Bible Camp is going down. The other variables haven't changed. Who's leading Vacation Bible Camp, where we're doing it, the curriculums that we're using, how we're doing, those things haven't changed, though interest in them has decreased. Our world, our culture are different than they were 50 years ago, 25 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. Belief in God is in decline. People are not as interested in church, at least in churches like ours as they used to be. The world has changed. The church might ought to consider the same or consider dying. A wise person has said, if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. Let's say that together. If you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. Of course, the church, this church, has changed over the years. Here, fun picture, is who we were or what we look like exactly 75 years ago, right on this campus, Old Sanctuary, now Geneva Hall. This is from 1947. That was us. But, of course, that is not us. We are different than they were in so many ways, not only in how they dressed and how we dressed, but including in how they dressed and how we dressed. Aren't you grateful, men, that the expectation is no longer that you will wear a suit and tie when you show up here on Sunday mornings? Aren't you grateful, women, that the expectation is not that you wear a full dress, high heels, and a hat? on Sunday mornings to worship. We have changed along with our cultures in some ways, and we can continue to do that. And in many ways, we must. Holding on to the fundamentals of our faith as affirmed in the scriptures and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed and our values, there is still lots of room for us to change and to adapt and to meet people where they're at, to make the gospel more accessible to where people are at today, to how people operate, to the languages people speak, to the itches people need scratched. Without compromising the gospel or watering down truth or ignoring the parts of the scriptures that are sometimes difficult or the messiness of faith. I am sure that God is calling us, I am sure of this, to new ways of being church, of meeting people where they're at, of changing some little and sometimes big things in order that some might be saved. Like the Apostle Paul, we have a tremendous amount of freedom and latitude about how we do church, how we are church, but his governing ethic and ours should be an eager willingness to become all things to all people that some might be saved and that we will share in the gospel's blessings. So today after worship, as Christy said, as we've talked about for a few weeks now, today after worship, members of our Names Change team and Elder Board will share with the congregation the name by which we will be known going forward, as well as the process through which they and we as an Elder Board went to get to that place. 
big reveal last night at dinner. Uh, the family was just pelting me, trying to get extract from me uh, the name that uh, it was really difficult, hard to stand up, lots of temptation, lots of prayer for me inside. Just pelting me relentlessly, but it, it sort of ended up being this fun, uh, laughable time of all the possible crazy, ridiculous names that we possibly could be. Uh, I won't share any of those with you. You can talk to Karen and the kids later and get a good, hard laugh. I'd like to share a few thoughts about the reasons for a name change because for some of us, it's hard to understand the need for a name change. First Presbyterian Church, our first Presbyterian Church, San Mateo, has worked fairly well for us. Why change the name? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And my response to that question could go back to the book of Acts. Eating only ceremonially clean animals made sense to the Jewish background followers of Jesus, but not so much to the Gentiles out there. It made sense and it was fine with the insiders, but it really didn't make a lot of sense or connect with the outsiders. It had little meaning or appeal to Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus. The name First Presbyterian Church, similarly, makes sufficient sense to us who are already a part of the church or who come from a Presbyterian background, but for those who don't, it makes not a lot of sense. We're not expecting that a name change will make a huge difference in and of itself on its own, but maybe the decision has been made. It can't hurt, and maybe it will. And for an opportunity or a chance that maybe it will, we're willing to take that risk. A contemporary name may help bridge the chasm between the church and the world, which hopefully means a bridge between the gospel and the world. After all, how much sense does being called First Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church, make to when we follow a rabbi who said the first will be last and the last will be first? Who names their thing first anymore, and especially Jesus' people? I've been asked, where's Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth Presbyterian Church of San Mateo? Well, they don't exist. Why are you still first? just to show that you were, well, it's hard to explain. First Presbyterian Church also isn't very a unique name. It's not very creative. A full 25% of Presbyterian churches in the United States are named First Presbyterian Church, lacking all kinds of creativity. Very few people, even within the Presbyterian Church, know what the word Presbyterian even means. To many people, no doubt, Presbyterian connotes older and mainline, which is fine, but it's not where many younger people are. It's not where the next generation is. Jim Bell was doing some, uh, some uh, research into how people find us on Google a number of years ago. True story, right, Jim? And uh, one of the ways that people searched for us, First Presbyterian Church San Mateo, was uh, they put in the word perspiration. First perspiration church. People don't know any different. What's Presbyterian? What's perspiration? It's all a sweaty mess. When the United States was founded, roughly 25% of Americans identified as Presbyterian. This is remarkable to think about in our age. If you go back, just sort of Google the Presbyterian Rebellion. There was a point in history where the American Revolution was known by the British people or called or referred to as the Presbyterian Rebellion. Did a little digging around last night. In New Jersey, in 1760, 
approximately 37% of the churches in New Jersey that existed, church buildings, were Presbyterian. A full 25% of Americans identified as Presbyterian when the United States was founded. Now that number is 1%. It used to sort of be something that, oh, made sense to people, people resonated with. Not so much anymore. We are far more committed to being Christians and following Jesus than we are to being Presbyterians specifically. And I say that who's, as someone who's been Presbyterian my whole life. And if making this small change, in other words, the name of a church, somehow creates some curiosity for some people or eliminates a negative connotation, then we're glad to do it. Moreover, this small change somehow prompts us to realize and reminds us to remember that we are not called to be the church we were called we were for the culture that was 75 years ago, but instead we're called to be the church God is calling us to be for the culture in which we live today, which is so different than things were 75 years ago, then so be it. Let's be that church. San Mateo, the city, the county, the area, our neighborhood, I believe has never been more unchurched, dechurched, non-churched, non-Christian, post-Christian than it is today. 50 years ago, when someone moved to San Mateo, one of the first things they did was find a church and join it. That doesn't happen today at all, except for a very, very small number of people. And so we should find ways to not make it difficult for the Gentiles around us to turn to God, to meet people where they are at, to connect with them in ways that make sense to them. Jesus' disciples, the first preachers, evangelists, missionaries, church planners, and church leaders. The early church did not alter or compromise the truth about Jesus or the truth about the gospel or the core elements or tenets of the faith in Jesus or following Jesus, but they did remove whatever barriers they could to help people come to faith, to receive the Lord Jesus, to be welcomed into his family. I know how to do traditional church. You know how to do and be traditional church. It's the way and the place and the space with which I'm most comfortable and feel competent or capable. I don't know how to do future church, next church, a church that makes sense or more sense to people outside these walls. But as God, through his spirit, led the church in the first century to explore and to stretch and to learn and to adapt and to change. So God, in his spirit, by his spirit, through his spirit, can and will and intends to, wants to, I believe, do the same thing with us and for us. To rethink what it means to be church, and maybe the change of the name is just a small thing. Maybe a new paint color is just a small way of saying, hey, there's something new, fresh, alive, relevant going on here. Literally a couple of days ago out front, a, a man and his two little kids walking by, taking their walk. I have no idea who he is. He says out of the blue, and most people who walk in front of the church are completely unchurched, just walk in the neighborhood. Wow, that looks really great. Well, if getting rid of pink, nausea, mauve, dusty rose, <laughs> and being known as the pink church can have just one or two people one or two people's curiosity picked in a positive way. We'll repaint the building whatever color you like. 
whatever color you like. Another guy, true story, was, I was uh, Monday morning putting up a banner for Vacation Bible Camp. A guy was jogging by, I'd never met him before, and he stopped and said, wow, and this was a Christian guy. He said, wow, what you guys are doing on the outside is going to transform this community. I'm like, no, it's not. And I don't think it is. But in his eyes, it was a big change. And if a big change represents a little change and is a reminder for us and a prompt to us to be a different kind of church that has our eyes more on the outside than the inside, on the Gentiles than the Jews, than outsiders who have yet to come to faith and insiders who already are, like 99 and 1, then glory to God, so be it. Let's become that kind of church. I'm over time. I know I'm over time, but still got two bars on my battery. I want to share a story uh, including, concluding with you from, uh, by uh, a guy named Tony Campolo out of uh, one of his fun, inspiring to me books. Uh, Campolo uh, was, has been a uh, professor, sociologist, speaker, preacher, uh, Baptist minister on the East Coast uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, over the course of his ministry, he's traveled the United States. He's sharing in this passage about uh, one of his trips to Hawaii where he was there to teach and to present at a conference. He notes that when you come from the East Coast to Hawaii, there's an eight or nine hour time change. Jet lag is a reality. Uh, here we go. Whenever I go to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everyone else is asleep, but I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is still closed. With this background, you should understand why at 3.30 in the morning, I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I didn't even want to touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out, but it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked, what do you want? I told him, I said, uh, I, told him I said, I wanted a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then he grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of the restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated it if he had at least used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on a piece of wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting next to me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend, quote, unquote, responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why would you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? 
When I heard that, I made a decision, Campolo writes. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile crossed his chubby cheeks and answered with, and he answered with a measured delight. That's a great idea. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife to do the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants, to go in with, uh, wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who is really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of this affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And we came to the end of the singing. As we came to the end of the singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened a bit. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles myself. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off of it, she softly and slowly said, look, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake, take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I, I live just, around the, just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and, carried, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked toward the door, and we all just stood there motionless as she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place, not knowing what else to do. I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? 
Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws parties, birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no such church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And wouldn't we all? And don't we want to be that kind of church? And aren't we willing to adapt and even change if that's what it means? In small ways, in big ways, the paint, a name, those are small things in the big scheme of things. But in other ways, in going out and meeting people where they're at and living with grace and engaging people on their territory in their ways with who they are and how they are. Incredible things are possible. May God's kingdom come. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge and confess that all too often we've been people who have clung to things that we don't really need to cling to. And we have not embraced things that maybe you've set before us to embrace and to welcome and to engage. Out of fear, out of reluctance, out of pride, out of selfishness, out of a number of things. These are our confessions. Hear them, forgive, heal, restore, and redeem. Our vision until it becomes like your vision. Bring about your kingdom in our midst. Lead us in being church in ways that bring you greater and greater glory. Not for ourselves we hope and ask and want, but for you and that your glory might fill San Mateo and California and the United States and the whole world. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In the name of Jesus, who came to be with us. Amen.